Think back to a month ago. It was July 4th weekend, and while the country hadn't quite reached President Biden's goal for vaccination, all signs on the COVID front looked incredibly positive. New cases were way down, hospitalization and deaths had plummeted, restaurants, gyms, movie theaters were all starting to reopen, and parents were eagerly looking forward to sending their kids back to real, not virtual school in the fall. Today, with the Delta variant running rampant in hot spots across the country and new cases skyrocketing to levels we hadn't seen since last February, lots of questions are out there. What went wrong? And what to make of the seemingly confusing messaging from the CDC about what members of the public should do about it? We'll talk to one of the country's foremost experts on the subject, Dr. Lena Wen, the former health commissioner of Baltimore and the author of the new book, Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. My skullduggery co-hosts, Stan Clydman and Victoria Bassetti, are still on vacation. So I will be carrying the load here with Dr. Wen. Lots of questions we have for her. Dr. Wen, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Wonderful to join you as always. So, so much to go through here. And I just want to start out with what I mentioned in the introduction. July 3rd, there were 13,980 new cases of COVID across the country. August 3rd, this week, 104,758 cases. On July 3rd, 157 deaths across the country. August 3rd, this week, 516. What went wrong? Well, first of all, the numbers that you are citing clearly paint the picture that we are trending in the wrong direction in the U.S. again. We're clearly in the middle of another surge of cases. And I think we can trace back to back in May as to when things went wrong. I think the single biggest mistake of the Biden presidency when it comes to COVID-19 was the CDC announcement in May that vaccinated people don't need to be wearing masks. Now, they were right on the science. It is true that if you're vaccinated, you are very well protected from COVID-19. It's still true with the Delta variant, a little bit less so, but it's still true even now. But at that time with the data they had, it definitely was true. The problem was, they got the policy and the communication wrong because by not consulting with local and state government officials, not consulting with businesses and union leaders, they didn't see apparently that there would be this unintended consequence, which is that unvaccinated people would hear this news and say, well, what is the point of getting vaccinated now? There are no more mask mandates. And so I can also just do whatever I want to behave like a vaccinated person, except I'm not actually protected. That's in fact what happened, that unvaccinated people started doing whatever they wanted. We lost the incentive for vaccination. There was this feeling also that people were kind of in it for themselves. And so if you're vaccinated, why do you care if other people aren't vaccinated? Well, well, now we are seeing the consequence of this. You know, what's interesting, just observation I have listening to you talk that through, we've had this mantra for so long and, you know, well-deserved, it's 
all about the science, something that was clearly not the case uh, during the Trump years, and you make a very compelling case for that in your book. But as you just explained it, they had the science right, but they had the policy wrong, which suggests it's not really all about the science. There are lots of other factors we have to consider when we are trying to message and set policy correctly. Yes. I mean, I talked a lot in Lifelines about the work that I did when I was the health commissioner in Baltimore, and I did that on purpose. I talked about our strategy around the opioid epidemic, how we address the issue of infant mortality in our city. I talked about the setbacks that we had and how we course corrected. But in all of it, I was painting the picture that public health is not just about the science. Yes, you have to get the science right, because otherwise you're not credible if you don't use science-based information. And yes, it's a big problem when, for example, under the Trump administration, when political people began interfering with the data, as if the data should not be manipulated for partisan purposes, the data are the data. However, the interpretation of that data for policy purposes, that's not just about science, that's about values. In addition, public health is also about public trust. You can get the science right, but if people don't believe you, if they don't trust you, then you haven't really done anything. You have to win over hearts and minds. And that is part of the problem of the CDC. They're standing in kind of this righteous way of saying, well, we're the scientists. We know best, except if you are not on the front lines, if you don't understand what local health officials are going through, if you don't understand what businesses are going through and you're making policies that are disconnected from reality, then you're going to lose trust. And that's what's happened. The messaging that's come out is it's whiplash. People are feeling very confused. So many jurisdictions are now no longer following the CDC guidance, and that's a real shame because we really need the CDC as our premier public health institution to lead us out of this pandemic. Yeah. Were they wrong to reinstate the mask guidance last week? No, they were not wrong. This time they got the policy correct, but the reasoning and the communication was once again wrong. Here's what I mean. I think that the CDC should have come out and said, we were wrong. We made a mistake back in May. We thought that we could trust people to abide by the honor code. Clearly, we were wrong. Maybe we should have realized that before, but no matter, we were wrong. And right now, the problem is that over 90% of all the spread in this country is by unvaccinated people. The dominant transmission is from unvaccinated to unvaccinated. But because we don't have proof of vaccination, in order to get the unvaccinated to put on masks, we need the vaccinated to also put on masks. That's what they should have said. Instead, out came this, I think, quite garbled message about this Provincetown outbreak and how, well, now the vaccinated are the issue and vaccinated people now have breakthrough infections. They can transmit it to others. Yes, that's true. And I think you can also provide the advice, for example, for people like me. I'm a parent of two unvaccinated children. You could say if you are living at home with unvaccinated, immunocompromised people, you should consider masking and reducing risk in other ways because you don't want to transmit COVID your close family members. But you shouldn't then say we need vaccinated people to put on masks because they could transmit in general as a policy issue. That's putting the focus in the wrong area. The right area is to say very clearly the unvaccinated are the problem. Get vaccinated. That's what's good for public health. Once you're vaccinated, you really can do whatever you want. You can reduce risk if you want. You can continue with, with other things with your life if you want. 
let's focus our attention on the unvaccinated. Right now, we seem to be focusing our attention on the vaccinated who are not the problem. It's potentially seeding more vaccine hesitancy. It also just doesn't make sense and is giving people a lot of confusion. I want to talk about the unvaccinated in a moment because I think that's you know clearly one of the most important, if not the most important issue, but it's also, I think, a little more complicated than has been presented. But before we get to that, let, let's just uh, stick to the science for a moment on the Delta variant, because it is still unclear to me if you are vaccinated and you are exposed to the Delta variant, it's clear that people are getting COVID. It's not clear that they're getting particularly sick. It's not clear to, I think, a lot of people how transmissible it is if you're vaccinated and you are asymptomatic or just, you know, have a bad head cold or whatever, to what degree you can spread that to children who are not vaccinated or others or adults who are not vaccinated. It's a very good point, and I will give you the answers to the best of my ability based on the data that we have from a variety of sources. So here's what we know about the protection of these vaccines in today's climate and most of the um, of the virus that's around is the Delta variant. According to the CDC, the um, the protection that we get right now from uh, from severe illness is about 25 fold. So a vaccinated person compared to an unvaccinated person, you have a 25 times um, better chance of being protected from severe illness. That's huge. And you have an eight fold uh, chance of being better protected from getting COVID-19 in the first place. Now, there are two data points that make people concerned about the Delta variant in particular when it comes to a vaccinated person transmitting to someone else. The first data point is that if you are, if you have COVID-19 and, and it's the Delta variant, you are carrying a thousand times the viral load than with the original strain. That's for an unvaccinated person, but certainly that seems like that's a lot of virus. Um, another data point is that um, from the Provincetown outbreak, what they found was that vaccinated people who were infected seemed to have just as much virus as an unvaccinated person who's infected. Now, that's been misinterpreted as you're just as likely to transmit COVID if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. That's not right, because remember, you are eight times less likely to contract COVID in the first place if you're vaccinated than if you're unvaccinated. So if I have a chance of staying in a room with a vaccinated person or an unvaccinated person, even if they're both infected with COVID, um, or if they're both infected with COVID, that's one thing, but we know that one person is eight times less likely to have COVID than the other person. One other thing that I'll give you that actually but to wait, me can, is very can that Can that vaccinated person give me or anybody the disease, what's the rate at which they are likely to be spreading the disease? So this is a great question. We don't have the answer from the U.S. because the CDC, for unclear reasons, actually back in April and May, stopped collecting that kind of data on breakthrough infections in mild for people with mild illness. But we do have data from Israel. Israel, the UK have been, I think, doing a better job of data collection. The Israeli Ministry of Health has reported, I think in the last week, that they've done contact tracing of their um, vaccinated and infected individuals. And they found that 80%, 80% of people who are vaccinated and infected 
and test positive for COVID-19, transmit COVID-19 to no one in public spaces. 10% transmit to one person in a public space. 2 to 3% transmit to 2 or 3 and then the rest of the 7% is unknown. But you know, it, the transmission, you asked a separate question earlier, which is the transmission to close contacts. The transmission to people in your household is going to be higher. So my takeaway from this is, let's say that if I'm, I'm not a, I, I live at home with two unvaccinated children, but let's say that it were just me and my husband and we're both generally healthy people. We are not a menace to society. As in, the chance of us getting very ill is very low. The chance of us contracting COVID is low. The chance of us transmitting to somebody else is pretty low. And uh, in casual contact is pretty low. So we might say, if it were just the two of us, we're not going to change any of our activities. We're going to go back to pre-pandemic normal. That's a reasonable decision. We are not a public health threat. But because we have unvaccinated children and we don't want to contract COVID-19 and give it to our children, our decision is going to be we're going to mask when in indoor public spaces, we're going to at the gym, we're going to go during off hours. If we're in, at church indoors, we're going to put on masks. We're going to try to reduce our travel to only the, the things that we really need to do. I mean, I think these are the common sense things that people need to be assessing when it comes to risk in their lives. You know, by the way, you talk about in the household, and we were talking before about confusing messaging. I heard on CNN, a network for which you are a contributor yesterday, Dr. Francis Collins, the director of NIH, the National Institute of Health, saying that parents and kids should be wearing masks in the household. Now, that struck me as something that is never going to fly, it, almost a preposterous suggestion. Yet here you have one of the leading, you know, health figures in the country, you know, proposing something that, you know, parents and kids are never going to accept. Correct? We well, you're absolutely correct, although I will say that Dr. Collins has since issued a, uh, a retraction on Twitter about his comment. Oh, good for that. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all misspeak. And so he I, I give him so much credit for saying, hey, I, I misspoke in that context. Um, I, I really appreciate that. I mean, the you're, but you're totally right. I mean, I, there's no way that mm -hmm. you, you would expect parents and children to mask around one another at home on a regular basis. Now, I think there might be circumstances, right, if somebody is symptomatic. Ideally, they should be isolated until they get a test. Or if they were exposed, maybe they want to be or they want to be quarantining. But on a regular basis, of course, that is that's that's not something that can actually be a recommendation. But I think that goes back to our previous point about public health. Your public health recommendations also have to be doable. Public health is very practical, and I lay out in lifelines about how we might have a certain point set out a policy that wasn't so practical, and then we had to course correct um, because we realized that you can't be disconnected connected from the experiences of people who are, who are doing this every day. Let's talk about the unvaccinated, because that's clearly the biggest problem we've got. You've got, you know, a big chunk of the country that is either reluctant or refusing to get vaccinated. Now, it's clear that a big chunk of that population is concentrated in southern Red states, Texas, I think, uh, and Florida now have a third of the hospitalizations in the country. And there's sort of been a sort of political, you know, narrative that it's this is all the fault of Trump 
supporting MAGA diehards who just are not going to uh, go along with anything that a Democratic administration in Washington is telling them to do. And there's no question that's a part of it. But it strikes me it's more complicated than that. And I'll give you one example. You write in the book about the disproportionate impact that COVID has had on communities of color in this country. Um, uh, you know, much higher rates of hospitalization, severe illness, and deaths. And yet, it is precisely those populations that are way behind the norm in getting vaccinated. I live in Washington, D.C. in Ward 8, which is a almost entirely African-American ward I looked today, 25% of the population is vaccinated, you know, about half of what it is in the predominantly white wards in the city. What explains that and what do we do about it? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I do think it's important for us to not talk about the unvaccinated with one brushstroke and say that, oh, it's all for political reasons, just because there are certain parts on a map that may look like um, may, may look like a correlation. You're right that there are going to be people who are actually the anti-vaxxers who don't vaccinate their children normally um that's a group that's certainly out there there's another group that may have some political reason for not trusting president biden i think those are actually very those are the the minority of individuals who are not getting vaccinated at this point there's a huge middle group if you will who have one fear I mean, the reasons I thought I'll talk about, there are multiple reasons, but it comes down to one general fear. And that fear is they are more scared of the vaccine than they are of the virus. As in, some of them may know someone or maybe they themselves had COVID and survived. Maybe they think that they're young and invincible. They don't really worry about COVID-19. They may have heard misinformation about COVID and don't think that it poses a, a significant threat. They don't think the Delta variant is that serious, right? So that at the same time that they also heard misinformation about the vaccine. So if there's something, if you don't care that much about the disease, and you think that there's something scary about the vaccine, that explains why you're on the fence or not getting the vaccine at this time. Within this group, we also know that nudges really work. That is that vaccine What's, what's a nudge? What's a nudge in this context? So I would say an employer that says, we're going to implement a testing requirement. Okay, don't even call it a vaccine requirement. Call it a testing requirement. Twice a week, you're going to need to get a COVID-19 test. But if you're fully vaccinated, you do not need to get that test. That's something for a lot of people who are, again, they're on the fence. They may see getting the vaccine right now as something inconvenient. Why should they do it? Well, now testing is even more inconvenient. And so there are going to be people pushed in that direction because of that. There are also other people who just need the vaccine to be brought to them because there's so much else going on in their lives. I'll give you an example from, from, from Baltimore that I talk about in the book that at the beginning of every school year, we have thousands upon thousands of families who have not completed immunizations and we and, and then they end up not being able to go to school and therefore we we set up clinics to help them to get these vaccinations 
it's extremely rare that we would see a parent who actually has some kind of philosophical or religious objection to the vaccine. It's just that they didn't really get around to it. They don't object to it. But once we are able to bring the vaccine to them and have the vaccination drives in the school or have buses to bring them to the clinic to get the vaccination or even go on sports fields and line people up and get the vaccines, we're able to get them vaccinated. Actually, Baltimore City, as of the, when I was the health commissioner, had one of the highest vaccination rates for public schools in the country. And that's because we brought vaccinations right to people. And so I think that at this point, I, you know, I fine. I mean, if, if we want to say if President Trump wants to come out or former President Trump wants to come out and do a PSA or something on vaccination, fine. I don't think that's actually what's going to move the needle. I think it's the combination of the nudges and bringing vaccines to people where they are. That's going to be particularly important in minority co communities that um, where access is a major issue. And I'll give you another example from my own recent experience that complicates this further. I was on vacation last couple of weeks, uh, spent some time with family members, including a nephew and his girlfriend, young people, healthy people, and neither one is vaccinated. And, you know, my understanding, it's a sensitive issue, is, you know, they're young, they feel like, you know, they're okay. They're also politically, you know, lefties, a big, big part of their explanation is they don't trust big pharma and they don't trust the government. And I can understand that perspective. And that's a part of their thinking in not getting vaccinated. And I use that as another example of this is not a simple sort of, you know, Fox News watching MAGA folks versus the rest of us. It's more complicated. What would you say to young people who have that perspective. Well, can I ask you for your nephew yes. and, and the girlfriend, if they now had to get vaccinated in order to travel, or um, if they lived in New York and vaccines are now um, required in order to enter restaurants and, um, and, and certain venues and gyms, would that help to get them to get the vaccine or, yeah. or not? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the answer. As I said, this was a bit of a sensitive subject, so one didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, disrupt a family vacation by putting people on the spot. But you make a good point. But I'll give you another. You know, uh, I heard from another member of family whose son was very reluctant to get vaccinated, but finally did. But his explanation for not getting vaccinated is well. It hadn't even been fully approved yet. Mm -hmm. This was an emergency authorization. It didn't go through the regular steps that FDA would normally take for approving a vaccine. That seems like a, you know, a not unreasonable point to think about um, when one is trying to make a decision like this. Yeah, it's interesting. So I actually think that there are two different things um, that have to happen right now whenever we're talking about people who are holdouts. One is how do we address people in the moment? As in, if we're talking to our friend, our colleague, our relative, how do we approach that conversation? And the second is what are the societal policies that can help us? And they're actually, I think they're totally different. So in any of these conversations, if you're talking to your nephew, if you're talking to this friend, 
it's really important to meet people where they are, to approach them with compassion, with no judgment, but instead ask them about their concerns. I mean, if I were listening to this and somebody said they're concerned about um, about the, the fact that this is not FDA approved, I might say that this is a treatment, um, a therapeutic that's now been given to hundreds of millions of people, more people than for basically the vast majority of therapies that actually are approved by the FDA. That right now, it really is just a matter of um, of getting all these other things like manufacturing and storage. That's the reason it hasn't received full approval. It has nothing to do with safety and efficacy. Shouldn't, they have, shouldn't they have approved it by now? I think that they should explain why it's taking so long. I think that the transparency and explaining um, what that entire process is would be really helpful. But if I could just go go back to the, the second point, which is I think on a policy level, I think it's different because on a policy level, I think it's time for us to start saying if you are unvaccinated, it's equivalent to drunk driving. You can choose to be unvaccinated if you want to be just as if you, you can choose to become intoxicated if you choose to be. But if you um, but you do that in private, if you want to engage the public space, it is mm. not safe because you should not be allowed to endanger other people. And so I that's why I really like what New York City is doing, what France has done, um, what Israel's doing, having this health pass idea. I mean, why should the freedoms of some people why should that outweigh the right of of um, of the vaccinated as well as our children and immunocompromised people to stay healthy and safe? One, I just want to come back to the Delta variant very quickly for one, because, you know, this was something new, relatively new. I you know the first reports were some months ago, I'm sure in the scientific community, even earlier than that. But how do we prevent more variants from getting out there and, you know, once again, throwing us for a setback? It's a great question. The best way is for us to increase vaccination and stop the surges. We know that viruses mutate when they replicate. Now, the vast majority of mutations don't really have any clinical significance. We look for three things. Is it more contagious? Is it more deadly? And does it evade the protection of our vaccines? The Delta variant is more contagious. It appears to cause more severe disease. The vaccines we have appear to work, but less well. What happens if we have a new variant that develops over time that actually is more contagious, more deadly, and evades the protection of our vaccines? I mean, that would be really terrible. And the best thing we can do to avoid that is by stopping replication, meaning stopping the the widespread transmission, which not only includes stopping the surges here, but around the world, too. I want to ask you something about your book that really leapt out at me when I read it. You're a professor of public health at George Washington, emergency room physician. You're a contributing columnist for The Washington Post and a CNN medical analyst. And while juggling all this during COVID, you gave birth <laughs> right. to a new baby and your husband, your new baby, and your older child all came down with COVID. I'm, I'm just, it's almost mind boggling to imagine how you were dealing with all that. But um, just tell us a little bit about that experience and how is everybody today? Yeah, you know, so I, 
wrote my book, Lifelines, and delivered the book. My plan initially was to deliver the book before I deliver the baby. <laughs> and so I, I, so I delivered Sounds the book. like you didn't, you didn't succeed on that front, right? Well, yeah. I succeeded in delivering the book. Oh, you it did? Just, um, it just that. So I, I finished it. Didn't come Publisher out. Publisher said, right. great, in February yep. of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then we had the pandemic hit. And then I'm sure this is what every author loves to hear, um, which is you have to write it over. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because not. Who, <laughs> yes, right. because who writes a book about public health without talking about the biggest public health catastrophe of our time? So, you know, so it took me some time to figure out how I would write the rest of the chapters because I, I wanted to keep in the chapters on Baltimore and my experiences growing up. But how is that going to weave in COVID when it was happening in real time? Well, the last chapter of the book became a chapter that I never thought that I would write because who thinks that they would write this? And it's called COVID Comes Home. And so what happened was that, um, well, the first part part of the the chapter, I talk about my experience giving birth in a time of COVID. My my baby was born in early April of 2020, which is hard to believe that that was right before the CDC recommended masks. So our healthcare workers were wearing masks. My husband and I were not. Until the last minute, I wasn't sure if he was able to enter the, the delivery room with me. I mean, it was that kind of time when my baby, who is now 16 months old, was born. But then, you know, we did, I think, as all other families do, we were trying to figure out how to do our work. My husband had just founded a startup that began right before the pandemic in January of 2020. Great timing also. Um, and we were trying to juggle all of this and work and family and our kids and pulled our son out of preschool because we weren't sure about the exposure there with a new baby. We our relatives couldn't come and visit us because they live in other countries. And actually, my father and my mother in law still have not come to, to even meet the baby yet. But in any case, in the middle of all of that, my husband was working very hard because of his startup and he was feeling tired and achy and just had a headache. But we really thought it was because he just hadn't been sleeping well. He was working really hard. And then one day he spiked a high fever and lost his sense of taste and smell. And we thought, oh, my goodness. I mean, he had been to some client meetings, but we thought that they were all safe. They were all outdoors. This is pre-vaccine. So we couldn't, you know, it wasn't that people were vaccinated, but we thought that they were pretty safe. I actually was enrolled in a vaccine clinical trial for the Johnson Johnson vaccine. So I'd been getting tested regularly. I also get tested regularly for work. And so I had not been, you know, the most likely person to get COVID is me because of my clinical work, but I had been testing negative. So we really didn't understand where he got it from. But before we had a chance to really figure this out, both of our kids started coming down with COVID symptoms too. Now, to cut to the chase, everybody ended up being fine. It was kind of a miserable um, several days. And I think the part of it that was so frightening for us was we didn't know where it was going to go. As in with COVID, especially early on, you know, we didn't know the clinical course and we didn't know, though, that there were two peaks. And so somebody could be actually doing pretty well, but could still deteriorate day seven, 10, et cetera. And also, I didn't know about the baby. There was very little information available at that time about children and COVID. And I mean, it was really frightening. Um, but I think that this is an experience that in a sense, we all have lived through it, right? I mean, how many of us at this point don't know someone who contracted COVID, who got ill from COVID or, he, or who even died? I mean, this has really touched right. us in every way. And that's and we, why and, COVID and comes home. You said something, you know, we didn't know where this was going to go. And that's kind of a metaphor for where we all are in, in, in all this. We just don't know. And we keep hearing new 
assessments, new messaging. Uh, it's all very confusing. So I really want to thank you for helping sort a lot of this out for us. The book is Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health by Dr. Lena Wen. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for your excellent work to help to inform people and help to guide them um, in, during these challenging times. Appreciate we it. We do our best. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot.